So the, the title of my, of my talk um, this evening is The Legitimation of Criminal Justice in Post-Genocide Rwanda. And for some of you who've, who've listened to me speak before, you know that for me this, this research actually really began when, when I was a lawyer at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And I found myself sitting in a prison in northern Rwangari, well, what was previously known as Rwangari in the northern province, when, um, and Eugene, who was the man sitting um, at the interview table opposite me, was accused of participation in a massacre that had occurred at the High Court building on the 7th of April 1994. He was arrested in 98, along with thousands of other Rwandans suspected of participating <coughs> in the genocide. But eight years of incarceration remarkably had actually brought him into contact with a full plethora of international, national, and localized um, legal responses to the crimes of the genocide and the civil war. And on that day, Eugene articulated his really strong support for Gachacha, which um, I'm sure as most of you in the room are aware is a, is a state implemented but, but locally administrated transitional justice process that draws its name and some of its procedural aspects from Rwanda's traditional dispute resolution process. And what struck me in that was firstly that there'd been an enormous number of criticisms raised against Gachacha and secondly that for this one individual, um, the international, national and local courts were actually all intersecting through his personal experience. And so today, that's really what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk about both the informal interactions between these courts through their common group of participants and also the formal interactions. Exploring, I suppose, what Lawrence Rosen was suggests that it may be that it is in law that the contest between a sense of the local and the global will receive some of its most serious testing. So I'm going to structure this discussion broadly around three points. First, I want to make an argument that looking at Rwanda, I know I'm in a general Africanist audience here, is particularly pertinent because it provides an early example of concurrence of an international, national and local set of processes that's increasingly prevalent in a number of African states, Uganda, Kenya, Sierra Leone and, and Cote d'Ivoire to name a few. But most of the scholarship focuses on individual, on the individual legal institutions and I think neglects the connections and engagements between them. So second, my second point is going to focus on the empirical work I conducted for my, for my doctoral research where I went inside each of the Rwandan courts and I want to show that although the ICTR, the national courts, and Gachacha are legally compatible insofar as they don't raise any jurisdictional challenge to each other. They've been interpreted, the judges and lawyers have interpreted the actions of the courts very differently. And I think this illuminates divergent legal cultures that has actually led to failures in effective um, collaboration and, at points, competition <coughs> between these courts. And then finally, I, I want to extend this argument to say that these understandings that we're seeing coming out of the courts are actually a process of them embarking on, on self-legitimation during a period of rapid social, political and legal change. But yet, given the group of common participants, such as Eugene, 
it's the fissures between the three courts that that actually raises the greatest challenge to legitimacy in in um, criminal justice in Rwanda today. So that's where I'm going. But um, first, just to note this this prevalence of these of a multiple of multi-tiered justice processes. I think that. There's a current assumption in, in international criminal law and in transitional justice that if a little is good, a lot must be better. Practitioners and scholars alike argue for holistic responses to serious human rights violations. And multiple justice processes are now routinely implemented in single countries. I think we can see this, as I said, quite clearly across, across a number of African states. In Sierra Leone, Following the implementation of both a hybrid tribunal and a truth commission, there's now a call for, the, for a localized form of accountability. As I'm sure many of you in this room are aware, in Kenya, broad constitutional reforms have run in conjunction with a truth commission, a judicial vetting board, and the prosecution, as the press is telling us every day, of four senior officials before the International Criminal Court. But while a set of concurrent processes may at first glance seem as a way of, of, a, of responding to the myriad of needs that arise in, a, in response to mass violence, the question of how the courts or alternative accountability mechanisms interact with each other, I think is, has been sorely neglected. And in practice, this has most recently come to the fore in Uganda, when um, two weeks ago the Ugandan High Court International Crimes Division stayed prosecutions against Thomas, uh, against Thomas Coyello, sorry, let me get that right, um, a Lord's Resistance commander who, um, following a constitutional court decision where, in which they said that the amnesty that had been passed in 2000 um, was still in application. And this was at the same time as this international, this domestic, in, um, this domestic process had really been um, propelled by the indictments by the International Criminal Court. And so I think that <coughs> concurrence between international, national and local courts is, is a current and future reality. It's a, and a reality that's particularly pertinent in, in a number of African countries. Yet the notion that multiple transitional justice processes will complement one another is not something that should be assumed. <coughs> and what I, what I want to argue today <coughs> is that perhaps the points of conflict are a little bit more subtle and perhaps more fundamental than we would initially like to think. So let's look at the Rwandan case. Rwanda provides, as I said, a very early example of, of concurrence. The International Criminal um, Tribunal for Rwanda the national courts and the Gachacha courts have dealt with the same conflict and in many cases with the same crimes. Yet the, jurisdic the jurisdictional distinction between them is only based on the, on the seniority of the accused. Um, yet due to the, all three of these courts rely, heavily relying on oral testimony, and, um, and relying on accomplice evidence, particularly in the international court, which is dealing with the most senior accused, and the national court, where they're trying to establish chains of command. The outcome has been that most witnesses have participated in one, two, and in, and in a number of cases, all three of these jurisdictions, resulting in informal interactions. 
at the same time as there being a large number of formal interactions, which has happened through the International Criminal Court recently deciding to transfer cases to the National Court, and earlier in 2008, in part to try and free up capacity for these transfers, the national courts transferring what would have been seen as local leaders which would have fallen into the jurisdiction of the national courts down to the Gachacha courts. So, but yet, the scholarship on Rwanda has focused almost exclusively on the individual institutions. So there's writing on the national courts, there's extensive and, and very good scholarship on the Gachacha courts. But very few scholars have decided to look at how they've interacted. Madeleine Morris in, in 1996, when there was a dispute over the initial distribution of suspects between the national courts and the ICTR, said that um, there was a need to clarify the purpose of the jurisdictions. But she offered very little <coughs> guidance as to what that might mean. And then um, Alexander Betts in, in 2005 proposed that the political tensions and elite interests in all three tiers of the courts um, had undermined judicial credibility across the board. But I would think what he neglects is the role and agency of the average Rwandan in, in driving these processes, either as local judges, as in Younger Magail, or as the witnesses who've given the majority of the testimony. So I suppose today I, I really want to respond to that gap, pursuing um, an interpretive cultural analysis of the courts, the objective of which is to determine how the court's actions have, in the, in the words of Clifford Gatz, been produced, perceived, and interpreted by those applying the law and by those subject to it. So in order to explore both these elite and common understandings of law in Rwanda, um, I conducted 145 <coughs> interviews with, with ICTR, National Court, and Gachacha Community Court judges and lawyers and government officials, including the president of the ICTR, Judge Dennis Byron, the current Minister of Justice in Rwanda, Thasius Karugarama, the Executive Se Secretary of the National Courts, Damatia Mukandaganzwa. And in addition, I then conducted research in two rural sites in the north and the west of the country. Um, working with a group of participants, both inside and outside of the prisons, who had gone before these courts to, to give testimony. And what emerges from this, from this examination is that the objectives of the ICTR, the National Courts and Gachacha, have both shaped and been shaped by the practice of the different legal institutions. And this has led to increasing competition despite legal compatibility. So, so let's go inside the ICTR. Among the international judges and lawyers, the ICTR was, was principally understood to have contributed to international criminal case law. <coughs> As prosecutor Hassan Jallo succinctly stated to me in an interview, the first contribution of the tribunal is the jurisprudence. This has been tremendous, particularly in relation to the substantive law. It's fleshed out the elements of the crime, defining the contours of the law. And these words really encapsulated what the majority across de defense, prosecution, and chambers saw as the major contribution of the court when I conducted the interviews in 2008 and, and 2009. Um, 
and this was this was striking given that I'd initially assumed that, that different organs would have different focuses, particularly given the adversarial nature of, of these proceedings. Um, but the participants generally focused on, on the role that the tribunal had played in, in defining the elements of the crime within the statute, particularly in relation to the crime of genocide. And second, in, and this is interesting, the, the creation of a body of case law that provided the building blocks for the International Criminal Court, described by one respondent as a global movement and another as an international model of justice. Now, while this focus on developing international case law and with that an international legal order was very clear inside the ICTR, it, it was much less clear from below. Inside the Rwandan prisons, among the participants who'd given evidence before the ICTR, so had direct experience of these courts, um, the external nature of the laws was, was one, it wasn't the only, <coughs> but it was one of the points of criticism. As a, as a female detainee who had testified before the ICTR and had recently been sentenced to 28 years by the Gachacha courts, stated, it follows on the UN laws the international community is getting the criminals tried outside and that leads to less punishment. The notion of the outside was regularly iterated. As another ICTR witness who was a district leader in Rwanda and had been in jail for 14 years said, the rules are from the people from the outside. It's not the same as the people going from the inside. The people accused in Arusha ought to be brought here to have them all the way over there and you foreigners making up the rules, I do not think that's a good idea. So the ICTRs, and I'm not sure if, he was, if that was particularly aimed at me, but um, <laughs> the, the ICTRs focus on developing international criminal case law has, has externalized the rules of post-genocide justice. The understood contribution of the courts is also far narrower than that, than that what, what was initially envisaged in the mandate of the court when it was mandated to um, contribute to international peace and security, establish national reconciliation, and contribute to domestic judicial development. <coughs> and while I think one of the reasons for this, for this narrowing is quite self-evident, insofar as it's very difficult to say whether you've contributed to, to security or, or reconciliation, it's, it's much easier to focus that the, the case law provides something easily quantifiable in its neatly printed words. However, this shift to fo of in focusing on the written law has, has impacted the court's interactions with the national courts and gachacha. The ICTR, in, in focusing and principally seeing its role as establishing an international system of justice, examined the other actions of the courts within this same cultural context. As a judge in, in chambers articulated, this is not for Rwanda, nor is it a way to fix the Rwandan judiciary. The ICTR does not exist to please the Rwandan community. If the issues had been about strength, strengthening the Rwandan judiciary, then the trial should have happened in Rwanda, there could have been assistance through foreign staff, and there would have been an application of Rwandan law. In this case, there was a need for an international response. <coughs> the perspectives on Gachacha painted a similarly interesting picture of how these separate courts have really operated. Most participants initially emphasized the distinct nature of the proceedings and 
took quite a lot of care to try and distance themselves from Gachacha. There was a strong reluctance to engage on the issue and also a careful distancing in order not to be too critical. As one senior officer also in chambers said, the ICTR has adopted a hands-off approach to Gachacha. It's, it's not our job to criticize it. But among those who did see it as their job, there were a number of scathing critiques. One senior prosecutor said to me, it's a failed process. Gachachas undermined the integrity of international justice. The attempt to further domestic justice has undermined international justice. Highlighted in these words is the tension between, in, between domestic and international priorities. There's an assumption that the domestic courts are, or I think rather should be, pursuing the same objectives as the international court. And the result is that in establishing their own institutional contribution, <coughs> the participants at the ICTR similarly challenge the contribution of the national and the local courts. Um, and I but I think this is not just a case of talking about courts. It's, it's had real implications in terms of how the ICTR <coughs> has operated. Despite in, despite increasing reference to the local courts and of the 69 trial chamber judgments that have now come out of the ICTR, 51 of them actually make di direct reference to Gachacha. An analysis of these judgments shows that the ICTR's use of these documents is, is piecemeal and, and I would even argue misdirected. The most common use of Gachacha documents at the ICTR is for defense counsel to argue that their clients have not been mentioned in the domestic Rwandan proceedings that relate to the same crimes in the, in the indictment. Um, and although the, the trial chamber has actually been generally, generally and, and I think rightly, skeptical of this defense, um, none of the cases have actually admitted a full set of Gachacha proceedings and none of them have taken account of the discursive nature of the process, in which case there should have been evidence from, from the judges who, who presided over those hearings. Um, and only one ICTR case, I, I would say, makes, makes the best possible use <coughs> of the Gachacha records. And it's, interestingly, also the first and the last case to have, expert, exp have an expert witness on the, on the functioning of Gachacha giving, giving testimony. In the Satako decision, in finding that the prosecution had not established beyond a reasonable doubt that Rachel Makutama was killed by Satako on the 8th of April 94, the trial chamber referred to a number of Gachacha documents which recorded that the victim had been killed in a different commune in the prefecture of Gaseni. And as I'll show, the, the determination of individual deaths and the naming of victims and the location of their bodies has actually been one of the principal activities of the Gachacha courts and could have been a point of really effective um, communication and cooperation that I, think, that I think has been lost. Because how the ICTR judges and lawyers have interpreted their own actions better explains the international courts' general skepticism of the domestic processes. However, just before you think I'm only having a go at an international court that I used to work at, the, um, this, this is a similar trend was actually emergent in, in the other two Rwandan post-conflict post institutions. So I conducted interviews inside the national courts where I spoke to 22 prosecutors, private lawyers and, and judges. And what emerged from the coding of, this in, of these interviews was something very different to what I'd seen come out of the ICTR material. The focus here was very much on the national court's contribution to judicial capacity. So as one judge said, 
There's been an enormous amount of positive evolution in judicial capacity, and this needs to be recognised. 2004 was a turning point. A lot of new judges were employed, and they've received better training. The primary focus here was on, was on judicial training specifically. As a prosecutor said, the most important aspect of judicial reform has been hiring competent judges. Before 1994, and actually before the reforms, the majority of the judges were not qualified in law. I don't know what criteria was used to hire them, but it wasn't a law degree. This focus on judicial expertise is notable and was used inside the institution and the time I was doing the interviews was when um, the ICTR had refused initial transfer to the national courts. So it was used to affirm the capacity of the Rwandan courts <coughs> to conduct fair trials. However, crucially, the ICTR and, the, and Gachacho were interpreted within the same cultural context. As another lawyer said, the ICTR has attempted to play a supervisory role. It was their role to build our <coughs> system. If they did not meaningfully engage with Rwanda, then their legacy is meaningless. The personnel working in the national courts evaluated the ICTR against what they perceived as the major contribution of their own work, namely the development of judicial capacity. And similarly, when criticisms were raised, and they certainly were, of Gachacha among the lawyers, they related, as, as one lawyer said, with the Nyanga Magail, which are the Gachacha judges, it's an issue of capacity. And as a former judge said, one of the major challenges facing Gachacha has been the acceptability of it by the legal fraternity. In a common legal culture, the actions of the ICTR and Gachacha are ascribed a meaning that helps to legitimate the work of the national courts. And I'm going to go into this argument in more detail in the last <coughs> section of my presentation. But it has, again, implications for how the courts have actually functioned. When cases were transferred from the national courts to Gachacha, what you saw was an increasing pressure on those courts to follow a more formalized procedure, which if where, where Gachacha has been functioning um, usefully in communities, and there's been vari variation across this, it's been a lot about the dialogical processes that could happen at the hearings. Yet, the emergence of these competing legal cultures was, was similarly true inside Gachacha. Among the, the local judges and lawyers that I interviewed, the dominant justification for, for the activities of these local courts was to provide information about the conflict. And again, this is, this is very different from the ICTR's focus on, on international criminal law, from the national court's focus on building judicial capac capacity. As one Elderly and young, as one in Younger Mogao, an elderly man and long-term resident in Kigali articulated, basic information was needed. It was helpful to the victims and survivors to know what happened. Many survivors didn't know what happened. As a survivor, you are not outside to see, but as a perpetrator, you know you killed. This is helpful from a national and a family perspective. Now, in the northern research sites, this, this, this focus on gathering information about the conflict um, actually focus more specifically on the accused. Um, as, as one um, in Younger Magail, in this instance, uh, a Hutu woman with, with no formal schooling, but a, a very intimate understanding of the conflict articulated. To me, Gachacha was very crucial. I was, the one of, I was one of the people who saved people, helped them with their lives. That's why I was elected. It's not as easy as people think. There were people who were killed for helping others, 
There were those who killed actively and those who did not kill. It's helped with the unity of these people. Now, I think what's particularly interesting about her sta this particular statement is that she's actually refu referring to intra-Hutu account um, accountability and unity. For this in Younger Magal, Kachacha has not resulted in the collective guilt of all Hutu as it has been argued to, but has rather allowed for crucial differentiation between the individuals. In Scott Strauss's account of the genocide, the contest for power following the downing of Habyari Mana's plane was actually initial, initially an intra-Hutu struggle for domination in which, in which the Hutus promoting a violent racist agenda won. <coughs> if this position is accepted, as this particular Nyanga Magayo articulated, intra-Hutu unity is a crucial component of, of, the of any justice-seeking process in the country. Consistent with Gachacha's internal ascription of meaning, the ICTR the and the national courts were also measured against the principal contribution that the, that the local courts were seen to have made. As another, judge, as another local judge said to me, in Arusha the big fish are there. Those in Arusha haven't asked for forgiveness. Those in Arusha have committed many crimes here. They should face us, the Rwandan family, but they avoid us by being there. The impact of Gachacha's interpretation of its own priorities has come to the fore in relation, um, in relation to its interactions with concurrent justice processes. And I think this, is, this has most recently been seen in the, in the cases of the UK High Court, which ruled against the extradition, which in ruling against the extradition of four individuals to Rwanda, brought to the attention of the courts that the two suspects had, act had in fact been tried and acquitted in abstentia by a Gachacha court in the southern province. Now, the pursuit of the cases by the Gachacha judges at, at that local level, despite the national court's clear intention to exercise their jurisdictional primacy, is in line with, with what the courts themselves say that they're trying to do, and it prioritizes the, the process of a local um, understanding and providing full information about the events at that er in that area. The local courts, I think, were, were under pressure from the families of the accused to pursue the cases because of the possibility that the accused's immediate local community would actually provide more exculpatory evidence than would be available in the international and, and foreign proceedings. So what seems to emerge from the empirical data here is that internally, the courts have been understood to pursue very different objectives, illuminating what I think are divergent legal cultures that have resulted in, in <coughs> failures and effective collaboration. But the question that I think this raises is, is why have these divergent cultures emerged? And, and are the differences so fundamental as, as to be irreconcilable? Are the courts doing something so different that they can't possibly be brought together? So in, this, in the final section of this talk, I want to suggest that the different meanings ascribed to the work of the courts can usefully be explained as a process of self-legitimation. The ICTR, the national courts, and Gachacha have all actively been attempting to establish their legitimacy to exercise power over the Rwandan population. In a transitional period, the legitimacy of, <coughs> of power and is often in question, and, and Rwanda is certainly no exception in this regard. 
Since the RPF gained effective control of Rwanda in July 1994 through a military victory, the government has embarked on a process of trying to establish its authority to rule. And the courts have played a key role in this process. The RPF gained power through, as I said, um, a military victory. And so, as an, unelected, as an initially unelected ruling force, this immediately raised questions around the legitimacy of their power. The delegitimization of the previous regime has been crucial in establishing the current government's um, political control. The br brutal crimes of the genocide and the involvement of the previous ruling elite in these crimes provided one basis for this exercise. And as a result, since 1994, criminal law has been central in the Rwandan state's exercise of power, and the courts themselves, as institutions in their own right, have tried to legitimize themselves. Rodney Barker describes self-legitimation as the actions that those in power take to insist on or to demonstrate as much to themselves as to others that they are justified in following the patterns of actions that they follow. And I think David Beetham's theory of legitimacy here is useful in, in, in explaining and better describing how the actions of these courts have been a process of them trying to establish their legitimacy. Beetham, in attempting to provide both a normative and an empirical theory of legitimacy, argues that it comprises of three distinct elements. The first is that the exercise of power must conform to established rules. The second is that the rules must be justified by reference to beliefs shared by the dominant and subordinate parties in the power relation. And third, that, the, that there must be evidence of consent by the subordinate to that particular relationship. So now, if we look at the ICTR's strong focus on the establishment and development of international case law, it suggests that the court has really been trying to establish its authority through Beetham's first requirement, that the institution's power is acquired and exercised according to established rules. This focus insulates the court from its failure to justify those rules in terms of a shared belief or common interest of those it exercises authority over. The ICTR has appeared unclear at points as to whether it's trying to exercise control principally over the Rwandan state and its citizens, or over the more elusive and possibly illusionary notion of the international community. The ICTR's focus on legitimating itself solely through established rules better explains what Daryl Robertson has termed the court's scrupulously generous focus on procedural rights, while the court remains comfortable with its sweeping modes of liability, expanding definitions of crimes, and general reticence towards defense. When turning to the Rwandan courts, I think a number of commentators would argue that the courts fall at the first illegitimacy hurdle, failing to meet the criteria of conformity to a set of rules. There have been allegations of executive involvement in politically sensitive cases, and NGOs <coughs> and academics have questioned the independence of the Rwandan judiciary and its ability to provide an effective balance of executive power to Rwanda. I mean, a balance of power to the executive. Um, yet, I think that clear rules for national prosecution of international crimes were laid out and were supported 
both inside and outside of the country. In 1996, when the domestic legislation was passed, there was strong support from, from Amnesty International and, not, and a number of other human rights observers. And despite criticism of these proceedings, the resultant rules of the organic law were applied with increasing conformity. Inside Rwanda, I think power of, over those accused of participation specifically in genocide-related crimes mm -hmm. has been acquired and exercised in accordance with established rules. But I don't think that this means that the power is legitimate. I think that it just suggests that there's a potential for a deeper analysis of how the power is, be is uh, of how the courts are attempting to establish their authority. Unlike the ICTR, conformity to established rules didn't emerge empirically as the dominant contribution of the national courts. The national court's clear focus on improved legal education is better explained through the justifiability of the rules in terms of Beetham's second criteria, the shared belief between dominant and subordinate powers. Based on their legal expertise and required education level, participants inside the national courts argued that they were able to exercise legitimate power over the people in the territory of Rwanda. The, Ru the Rwandan judges and lawyers were appealing to the high social value that is generally attached to education in Rwanda. The actions of focusing on legal expertise allowed the judges and lawyers to self-identify and provided them with an ability to identify with others in the group. However, in Beetham's normative construct, what constitutes um, what constitutes what constitutes legitimate, legitimate power in this context would require the application of merit-based principles and the selection of those who would then exercise this quite technocratic um, authority. And so the major challenge, I think, to this legitimating process is actually the potential limitation of legal education and training to a narrow part of the population, particularly an RPF-lined predominant, um, predominantly Tutsi elite many of whom were outside of the country at the time of the genocide. At first glance, I suppose the Kachacha courts would seem to respond to this weakness. Um, through the introduction of locally elected judges, the majority of whom would self-identify as Hutu. However, the legitimating process in Kachacha, I think, also highlights where the, where the authority of the courts has been eroded. Despite the Gachacha court's move toward, towards legal formalism, empirically, again, the written law didn't emerge as one of the articulated means through which people were, um, through which the personnel in the, in the court were trying to establish their <coughs> contribution. As with the national courts, the focus of, by the Gachacha judges, I think, is better explained by Beetham's second criteria of focusing on shared beliefs and common interests. The personnel exercising authority of the courts have drawn on what they understand as a common interest among Rwandans in having a legal process, given the enormous number of detainees um, that were in jail at the start of Gachacha, and on providing information about particularly where the bodies of the dead are buried and, and, and who specifically was killed. I think that the weakness in Gachacha's legitimating process actually turns on, on Beetham's final requirement, that of consent. Because consent to the authority of, of Gachacha requires weekly attendance by all adult Rwandans at the hearings. And in a predominantly subsistence farming community in rural Rwanda, one day a week at Gachacha directly impacts on people's livelihoods. In addition, 
Speaking out at the hearings can have local repercussions. As one participant articulated, people keep quiet, they're scared to speak. People don't talk because they might not be understood. The failure of continued express consent presents a problem to the legitimacy of the Gachacha courts and I think helps to better and more deeply explain the strong stance that the local authorities have taken to either silence or low participation at the hearings. At one of the hearings I attended, the local coordinator berated the population for failing to provide full consent through active participation. As, as, it was translate, as, my, as the researcher I was, I was working with translated, you people have got a big problem. You, don't, you do not want to tell the truth and you know almost everything. Many of you, when I look at you, you were mature at the time, but you do not want to testify against or in favor of the accused, basing it on the truth. And even the ones who comes to the front says that the genocide only happened a little here. You should tell the truth so that, there's, so that, so that anyone in prison who is innocent can be acquitted. The, the, this coordinator is actually making direct reference to the common interest of providing a legal process to determine the guilt or innocence of the suspects who are already incarcerated. I think it also it better, it explains the, the shift towards increasing coercion to attend gachacha hearings rather than, I think, being an, exam an example of sort of the far-reaching nature of the Rwandan state can actually be better understood as, as a response to the erosion of Gachacha's legitimacy as it, is, as it is dependent on this continued express consent. So the court's own interpretations of their actions illuminate the different means through which they've tried to establish their authority. However, the separate contributions of the courts while clearly articulated inside the institutions, inside the ICTR, the national courts and Gachacha, were, were not, was not a distinction that was made by the general participants who I interviewed. Among the general participants that I interviewed, the legitimacy of all three of the courts was most readily assessed in terms of the court's contribution to establishing a truth about the conflict. As one general participant said to me, it's important for the victims to hear what happened, for there to be truth that can somehow set the victims and perpetrators free. Similarly, inside the prisons, there was also a clear articulation of the importance of this notion of truth in a justice process. In the words of one of the prisoners, justice as I know it is a way of getting truth, if it's real justice. If you get truth, then you can live with one another correctly. The majority of the respondents emphasized the importance of any justice process establishing this truth. And in part, of it, in part, I think this is because of the breadth of the concept itself. It allows in, in application of Rosen's idea that, that it allows for a manageable, workable sense of one's experience of the conflict in a, in a society that actually still remains quite deeply divided. However, the common, the, the common assessment of the courts against a single objective suggests that the legitimacy of all three justice processes in Rwanda is not easily separated. As Eugene's case at the start of this presentation showed, among the general participants, <coughs> one court was often used as the basis to criticize how the others had operated. If as Gibson suggests, a belief in, in the legitimacy of a court is evident in people not opposing that court's decisions and refraining from attacking the institution. The popular practice in Rwanda 
of using the process of one court to criticize the other challenges the legitimacy of all three institutions. Michelle, one of the prisoners I interviewed in comparing Gachacha and the national court's contribution to truth-telling said, people like me who went to the <coughs> classical courts begged to have a chance to go to Gachacha because it will reveal the truth. In 1994, I feel like those courts were not seeking for truth, they were seeking for conviction. The comparison is not always in favor of the local processes. As another inmate in Kigali Central Prison said, Kachacha doesn't give you enough flexibility. You're driving, but you're between two walls. Arusha, I've been there. Arusha's a good answer to the problems with Kachacha. They're, they're getting real justice there because they take time to analyze what happens. If you're guilty there, then you're really guilty. Where the ICTR, the national courts in Kachacha were perceived to have responded to a need for truth-telling, <coughs> it reinforced the legitimacy of that particular court, often at the expense of the others. However, formulating a unified response to the, Rwandans arti the Rwandan articulated need for truth-telling, I think could have reduced the competitive tendencies between the courts. So, in conclusion, while the post-genocide courts do not exercise jurisdictional challenge to one another and purport to pursue similar objectives, what is clear from this research is that their practice has actually led to a divergence in objectives. In addition, how one process is justified affects how the others are viewed and understood, and this has directly impacted the court's formal and, for and informal interactions. I think that these findings have important implications for the operation of local, national, and international criminal justice today. In an era, as I said at the beginning, where the of, with the international criminal court's ideas of complementarity and a trend in transitional justice scholarship towards advocating for multi-tiered responses to mass atrocity, it should not be assumed that concurrent processes will automatically complement one another. What I think the Rwandan case shows is that multi-tiered justice systems, multi-tiered systems of justice require effective debate criticism and revision of the objectives of the courts that occur between the levels of justice. This discursive process has to happen between the institutions, fostering what I t would term a culture of complementarity that responds to the shared beliefs and common interests of the people <coughs> subject to the, that those courts' authority. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.